Welcome to the Final Cause podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. In this first series, we're bringing on special guests to dive deep into film and TV shows with witchcraft at the heart of them. I'm Anna, co-founder of the Final Cause and your podcast host. In this episode, we're going to be tackling two absolute stone-cold must-watch horror classics, Dario Argento's Suspiria and Inferno. Both films are part of his trilogy of the Three Mothers, a tree of ancient witches with powers so great that they can manipulate the world on a global scale. There is also a third film, obviously, in this trilogy, The Mother of Tears, but that one's best left alone. Suspiria, released in 1977, was the film that shot Argento to international fame and acclaim after it became an unexpected box office hit in the States. It follows an American ballet student, Susie, played by Jessica Harper, who transfers to a prestigious dance academy in Germany but realizes, after a series of brutal murders, that the academy is actually a cover-up for a coven of witches, all bowing down to the Mother Suspiriorum, aka the founder of the academy, Helena Marcos. Unparalleled in its visual style, with incredible music by Goblin and its visual direction, if you've never had the Argento experience, this is a good one to start with. After the runaway success of Suspiria, Argento was tasked to deliver a follow-up, Inferno, released three years after Suspiria, provides a lot of backstory to the Three Mothers, exploring how the three witches set up shop in Freiburg, Rome and New York City, where Inferno is set, and diving into just how extensive their supernatural powers are. Our protagonists are many, but mostly siblings Rose Elliott, a poet living in New York, and Mark, a student living in Rome. When Rose disappears, Mark goes to the States to try and find out what happened to his sister and encounters the Mother of Darkness, the most terrifying of the three mothers. I'm joined in this episode by Clarice Lockery, chief film critic for The Independent, to discuss both films. For those of you who haven't seen Suspiria or Inferno, go. Now, like right now, go watch them. They're really easily available anywhere and they've recently been restored too. Clarice and I will go into detail about both films and... Although there isn't too much plot in either one of them to spoil, we do reference particular set pieces and go into depth about our thoughts on the overall Argento approach to witches in both Suspiria, Inferno, and a little bit in The Mother of Tears.
Clarice, thank you so much for coming over, for doing this, and for picking these films as well to discuss. I've been sitting on them and dying to talk about them. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I've also, because I've never really had a chance to talk about either of them on any kind of podcast or written about them. So I've also been sitting, sitting on them. Well, this was a match made in a witch heaven, I guess. Um, <laughs> so to kick off, kind of, when did you first watch Suspiria and Inferno? Oh, wow. I don't know. I never, these are one of those, it's one of those movies, Suspiria is one of those movies that I saw at uni, you know, when you're just in your bedroom late at night on your laptop being like, what weird film can I watch? <laughs> I know exactly what that is. Yeah. And sort of, I watched it without a lot, because I was quite late to film criticism and sort of film knowledge and film history. And so I watched it without much knowledge of Dario Argento or the wider I know it's not technically a gallo film but you know it's sort of in that vague pool of movies so I sort of came of it very fresh and just thought I mean it's one of those films it just looks like nothing else and you can take a single frame from Suspiria and show it to somebody and they'll be like that's Suspiria. <laughs> you could play a single note from the Goblin soundtrack and they'd be like, yep, I know that thing, the thing from the movie with the Italian, with the witches. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then Inferno, I think I, I watched maybe two years ago um, just because just because I love Suspiria. I wanted mm. to see what, what, were the, what were the other movies in the trilogy. Have you seen Mother of Tears as well? Yeah, but it's not as interesting. Yeah, no, it's best um, best to not speak yeah. about it too much, really. <laughs> um, but kind of how, what was your first impression? Do you remember what it was like and how has it changed over time? I think the first time I watched it, it was a very sort of visceral experience because I think it's interesting now to actually be talking about it and deconstructing it and thinking about the themes and the actual writing and what goes into it because I think when I first watched it it was just that very pure experience of oh this is so weird <laughs> oh wow all oh, the colors and the music and the women and the woman that goes oh it's snake names and it was just so hypnotic and, and strange and so I don't I remember after watching it, I just didn't really process anything that I'd, I'd seen. I just sort of sat with the emotions for a mm -hmm. while, which is a really nice way to watch. I think it's kind of the, the one downside of doing this as a job is that you always want to go straight to sort of deconstructing. What are the themes? Mm -hmm. What is it about? Sometimes it's nice to just not think about that mm -hmm. and just let it be a pure, like a pure experience. I remember I probably saw it in a similar way to you the first time, Suspiria, probably in a laptop when I was at uni, maybe a bit older. And I kind of remember not really getting it, but sort of being really enthralled by it. Like, I don't think there's that much um, plot, really. Yeah, there's not that much to get. <laughs> yeah, there's just it's just a sensorial thing, right? You just kind of get washed over by all the colors and the music and the violence and all the stylized violence and all of these kind of you know over the top set pieces and then when you really break it down you start to kind of and when you think about it and then when the new superior coming out and when you find inferno and you go a little bit deeper like there's so many threads 
But yeah, it's it's mm, an, it's an interesting film, isn't it? When you watch Inferno, how do you think that compares to Suspiria? I think it is very interesting because in Suspiria, you know, there's no real mention of the three mothers or this whole mythology of it. And then suddenly in Inferno, it's the opening scene is her reading the book, explaining this entire backstory. So, yeah, it's interesting because Suspiria feels like a very isolated thing and then you just kind of tack on Inferno and and it feels separate but connected, mm-hmm. I would say, because it's, it's both the same film and very different and I think it's it's in that space between the two movies that it gets really interesting because I think maybe a lot of what's in Suspiria is quite subconscious like the subconscious ideas of like women being threatening and mystical and magical and then Inferno it's they basically say it out loud (laughs) because it's all you know it's the witches being like I am death (laughs) (laughs) and so it is yeah it's kind of it's fascinating to to see how Suspiria deals with it in this completely unspoken way that Inferno is like Mm. here I am (laughs) these are their witches they're evil witches and the three three of them them. yeah (laughs) they all have fun names (laughs) it feels very much sort of like a like a like a red herring in a way where they're tacked on all of this mythology that they definitely did not think about in advance, arguably. And then because Suspiria was such a massive commercial success, I imagine the pressure to continue making kind of films in that vein, or maybe not in that vein, kind of continuing that direct story was quite real for Argento. Yeah, it's a bit like in Fantastic Beasts (laughs) with the snake. We're in the Harry Potter movies, Voldemort just had a snake. And then yeah. she turned around, J.K. Rowling turned around and like the recent movies was like, it's actually a woman who was cursed. And you're like, Shh. I mean, it definitely wasn't when you wrote it. <laughs> so I, that's my feeling about Suspiria. I, I don't think he had any, I don't know, I, I might be promised, there might be written proof that I'm wrong, but. <laughs> you know, if we just go by the text and kind of what's in the films, there's nothing really to give us the idea that there's more than one mother or more than one sort of witch there's the way that they talk about helena marcos is always this you know they call her the black queen or she called herself the black queen so there's always sort of referred to as just being one yeah there's no mention of her ever and the way that they describe her makes her sound quite isolated Mm -hmm. she was going from country from country being persecuted being hunted down and it actually doesn't make a huge amount of sense of thinking, well, what in what point in that history did she hook up with, like, two other witches and decide to, you know, have a, a witch gang? <laughs> Let's talk about the witches in the film. So we've sort of already started a little bit, but um, how are witches presented in, in both Suspiria and Inferno? Very. I mean, they're kind of pure evil, which is interesting because I think... In culture now, witches are quite positive because we have really associated them with, you know, feminism and power and it's cool to be a witch. And it's interesting going back to these movies and it's like, nope, like they are pure evil, they are death. I think there's a line, is it in Inferno where they're talking about like the only thing, oh no, maybe it's in Suspiria where they Mm. say the only thing that witches do is, is cause destruction and harm and that's the only reason they use their 
their powers like there's no hint of anything which mm. is so strange because in wider sort of history even if you go back to like 16th century Percy mm-hmm. I mean those witches were still seen as evil but they were still like giving people little potions to help them out <laughs> so it's interesting to see a movie in which witchcraft is 100% evil mm. but sort of weirdly evil without a goal you know what I mean like in say uh I'm thinking of Roald Dahl's The Witches you know they have a specific goal or even in in other films like Hocus Pocus or I don't know why child, childhood kind of horror films come up to life there's always kind of a specific thing they either want to be young or they want to destroy someone in particular or they want to take revenge or they want more power or more knowledge but here they seem to be positioned as sort of just being evil for evil's sake. Yeah, and it, it there does seem to be some... I think in Inferno, there's more of a suggestion that they are... Because it's the idea that they're like the flip side of the three graces, mm-hmm. and so that they are just like pure personified evil, which makes them seem like they're a little bit more than witches. Because mm. Inferno kind of suggests that they were never human at any point i think in suspiria you can kind of get away with the idea that maybe helena marcos was a a person at mm. some point and, and she became a very powerful witch but inferno feels very much like oh these women you know came straight out of the the gates of hell and you know came to just cause pure destruction and then the fact that at the end she turns into a, a big old skeleton because mm-hmm. <laughs> she's like the you know she's the personification of death and and destruction yeah. and that yeah that's really interesting to me because it does seem so unlike any other representation of witchcraft and in inferno she doesn't even really get a name or an alias does she because in Suspiria, we refer to kind of the head witch. Before we know that she's the mother of um, of size, she is called Helena Marcos all the time. Helena Marcos, the black queen, whatever. But the mother of size sort of moniker comes later on. Whereas in, in Inferno, she doesn't really have a human alias. Like she's she's there kind of present. But the reveal at the end is very, you know, I am death. And then she turns into a big ass skeleton. It's on fire. It's all going to burn down. Just like before. We have to get out of this place. (laughs) You can't leave. Your journey has come to an end. Everything around you will become dark, and someone will take your hand. You'll be pleased, not unhappy. You'll enjoy moments of incredible brightness. (laughs) You think it's magic? No. 
I'm not a magician. Now we have to hurry, because we still have to pass through a number of strange phases and you'll change. You were looking for me, just like your sister. This is what you wanted. I'm coming to get you. Tell me who you are. The Three Mothers. Haven't you understood? Mater Tenebrarum. Mater Lacrimarum. Mater Susperiorum. But men call us by a single name. A name which strikes fear into everyone's heart. They call us! Yeah, there's no history to her. Yeah. You don't really know where she came from. You know, what, what was she always in New York? You know, did she sail over in the Mayflower? Like, <laughs> it's, yeah, it is interesting. They're very, very different witches in a way. Yeah. And what did you think about kind of uh, Helena Marcos's backstory? Because I found it really interesting that, well, it's all revealed in that Udo Kier monologue where he famously didn't really know what he was saying while he was reading that out because um, everything was dubbed over afterwards and he didn't really know English I think at that time but she's presented as kind of this woman who got expelled from a lot of European countries so she traveled a lot always alone always kind of practicing the black arts and then sort of settled in Germany but there's this phrase that he said that I loved where he said that she seemed to have something about her which urged religious thinking people to persecute her. Yes, I love that line. <laughs> they were kind of wild ideas. She had discovered that the Tam Academy was founded in 1895 by a certain Elena Marcos, a Greek immigrant, and that the local people believed her to be a witch. I guess you knew that. No, but I have a strange feeling that somebody already told me about it or something similar I can't can't remember well that really got Sarah's imagination going earlier in the 19th century the Marcus woman had been expelled from several European countries she seemed to have something about her which which urged religious thinking people to to persecute her she also wrote a number of books and I read that that among the initiated she went by the name the Black Queen after she settled down here she became the subject of a lot of gossip. Nevertheless, she managed to put her hands on a great deal of money, and she founded the Tam Academy. At first, a sort of school of dance and occult sciences, but that didn't last long, because in 1905, after being hounded and cursed at for 10 years, Madame Marcus died in a fire. That's all there is, as far as witchcraft is concerned. The school was taken over by her favorite pupil, the study of the occult was abandoned, and soon the place became the famous dance academy. But what does it mean to be a witch? Well, as a believer in the material world and, and a psychiatrist to boot, I'm convinced that the current spread of belief in magic and the occult is part of mental illness. Bad luck isn't brought by broken mirrors, but by broken minds. Excuse me. Milius? Professor Milius can answer your question better than I can. He wrote a book called Paranoia or Magic. And believe me, it's the final word in the subject. Excuse me, Milius. If you don't mind, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine. Fräulein? She's interested in your favorite subject, 
witches. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, so that taps into a bit more of the idea of witches as women who are persecuted by people because of some, you know, that's something that some people can't really qualify about what makes them dislike a woman. Mm. It's like, oh, there's something about her. I just don't like her. I just don't trust her. Yeah, and that's what I got from that line as well, that, oh, was she just, you know, a little bit too outspoken? Did she look a bit different from everyone else? It's, a, yeah, that is strange because that monologue is oddly sympathetic towards mm. her, I would say, because I think it's just like you said, it's more in tune with how we understand historical witches is mm -hmm. that they were persecuted women. And, you know, even if it, you believe in the black magic, there was also an idea that, you know, there were real women who were persecuted and they were attracted to this dark side. Um, but then it's sort of very isolated and then even the rest of Suspiria doesn't, you don't really see that sympathetic side to her because she's like a gremlin <laughs> for the rest of it. Yeah. You know, she's a very, very evil gremlin and, and it's so strange to just have that one little, like that one little moment of, of oh, she, she's, a, she's a real character. She's a person with a past and, and maybe felt pain and, and is bitter, but then no. No. Not for the rest of it. <laughs> she's not really, well, she's not really seen until almost the very end of Suspiria, isn't she? And she's kind of the, the, you know, menacing gremlin. But it's the, do you think it's kind of the idea of her that is more threatening than her, actually? Because what we see in the film is a very decrepit old woman, as opposed to this imposing, powerful witch that we hear about. But then when we meet her, it's a bit like, oh okay yeah it's almost i guess the idea that of the concealment mm -hmm. which you get and I, I guess that comes up a little bit in the the new suspiria is the idea that there's a bit of a facade because you yeah even though you don't really see, you don't see her in a full physical form until the very end where she is the, like the weird goblin <laughs> um you have like echoes of her so you have that scene where they're all sleeping in the in the grand room because there were maggots falling out of the ceiling, and so they they usher everyone into the downstairs. I don't what it's like the main hall, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That they're all sleeping in, and and all the girls are trying to get to sleep, and a shadow comes along and lies down behind the sheet, and there she seems. It's interesting. She she seems like like I don't know. There's something sort of feminine and powerful about that moment the shadow and it's the pink and it's like I don't know something about that scene I think you get the suggestion that when we do see her she is going to be this beautiful powerful woman and then I guess the only other time we see her is when Susie first sees her and she's just she's invisible but you see the outlines of her when the lightning strikes mm -hmm. and that's also quite sort of mystical and feminine and powerful and it's only when she manages to stab her that it's like gremlin <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's interesting i think it plays into the idea of, of you know it's a very common idea with witches you know that they're inside they're they're you know, creatures of the night and gross and scaly mm. and old, but they always put on this sort of mystical, beautiful visage. And I yes. think, I think, I'm trying to remember the first time I watched it. I mm. think I thought that when we would finally see her, she would be, you know, some beautiful Italian actress. 
with yeah. great eyebrows and high, <laughs> big old hair. And then it's interesting to see that that get cut off like that. Did you find it underwhelming? I don't know. I think because I'm used to that trope of, of, you know, you see it in so many witch movies mm. that they, they appear at first to be very beautiful, but actually they're, they're all gremlins. Do you think <laughs> it's that um, having this idea that women are always deceitful, that they're always hiding their true nature? I mean, even, you know, you don't even have to go into the depths of Twitter to see a lot of really shit messages from men being like, oh, if a woman wears too much makeup, it's akin to lying. Yeah, I think it's like a combination of that and the idea that you should, I don't know, like good people should be beautiful. And so like, oh, well, she's an evil witch, so she should look like a a gremlin. Mm. But. It's the deceit of like pretending yeah. to be kind and wise and beautiful and then sort of the mask slips. And so I think it's, it's interesting. Like it feels to me like a combination of that sort of misogyny and also like a very like black and white view of morality. Because it's like, yeah, a witch can't be beautiful. She has to be ugly. But also I'm a man and I'm, I'm kind of like attracted to the mystique of the witch. So I also want her to be beautiful. Oh, so I'll make it so that she's kind of beautiful, but then also secretly hideous. Mm-hmm. And that kind of comes up as well in Inferno, doesn't it? Because actually we are in the presence of the witch, the mother of darkness. She is masquerading as the nurse for Professor Albert. And she's in reality the witch. And we don't see that until the very end, but she's always there. And, you know, she's fairly young and not kind of presented as overtly attractive and beautiful but she's you know a perfectly beautiful looking woman but she's always sort of in the background and it's interesting when Argento because he's so visual and colorful when he doesn't place his attention on a character especially a woman in the frame you sort of don't even see them you kind of don't focus on them so I found that quite interesting that again this witch who we do meet kind of midway through the film you don't actually know who she is you're not really looking at her and then the reveal feels a little bit underwhelming yeah I kind of like the reveal in Inferno because it, it does feel like a surprise Okay. because you have the sensation that whoever this witch is she's everywhere because they have the pipes in the apartment building that means that whatever you say someone is listening and so the idea that the whole time it was someone that Hmm. we were always seeing but she was as you said just kind of in the background is kind of an uh, a cool and and interesting idea to be even though I guess it's that because his movies are so sort of (laughs) sparse on dialogue and plot Mm -hmm. it maybe could have been more of a surprise if they had built that character up more but I like the idea behind it that you know especially because she's the mother of darkness and she's meant to be the cruelest of them all the Mm -hmm. fact that she was masquerading as a nurse is quite ironic yeah because she's sort of masquerading as this um you know carer and as a caring figure a selfless figure but actually what she is is pure death. And it's like the character's quite uptight as well, the nurse character, because she's got that weird line about like, oh, women are very suited to poetry. Yes. <laughs> like, all right. 
<laughs> like she seems like a very like matronly nurse like she's very stern and scornful and then I think the idea that that to her is the opposite of her true nature which is this like chaotic demon type does make a lot of sense to me and kind of what do you think about the spaces and the way that he uses them in in both films because I find it interesting rewatching that um Suspiria is a lot is made about the dance school most of the film is set there um you know and it's very creepy and it's this all-female space you know the teachers the students are girls and you know all you I think you basically get a couple of men as either cameos or very very secondary or kind of supporting characters there's a lot of kind of intense female presence concentrated in one particular space and then inferno there is that vibe of kind of everybody's listening in the apartment building and a lot is made about the architecture and the the architect who build the houses for the three witches or definitely the one in new york is is a character in and of himself but and the fact that he's sort of been maintained by the mother of darkness kind of implied to me that the space that they have to with their dwelling is very important to them their nest so to speak but um it feels very empty compared to the dance school in Suspiria. I don't know, kind of, what did you make about the their nests? Yeah, I guess because Suspiria, you very much guess, get the sense of it being a coven because it's this all-female space. You don't. I feel like you don't really get a sense of how much the other students might be in on it. Are they completely clueless? Do they know, but they just kind of are okay with it? Or, or are they active in it? But you do have at least the teachers are very much a part of this coven, whether you're meeting secretly every night, and you don't you don't really get that in Inferno. It seems like the Mother of Darkness is a bit lonely. She's just very much on her own, hiding. She has this, you know, this architect that she's both taking care of and imprisoning at mm-hmm. the same time, and they have kind of their little toxic relationship. But outside of that. Yeah, you get the sense of the building is mainly abandoned. There's not many people living there. And so, I don't know, yeah, it's it's interesting because I think Suspiria has more of a traditional feel to it in that sense because I think you think of witchcraft, you think of covens, you think of like an intense amount of like feminine energy. And then in Inferno, it's it's sort of women in isolated positions because mm-hmm. this, the camera kind of weirdly like because it's meant to be the main character is meant to be a guy mm-hmm. mark Who's but the, then yeah yeah so he's the the brother of the woman who initially goes missing it missing mm. at the beginning of the film because she's read the three mothers book mm-hmm. and then she just goes away although that set piece where she goes to the house and the underwater scene where she gets attacked is so beautiful and so horrifying. I think it's one of my favorite Argento scenes. Yeah, and it's really creepy that she goes down into this underwater cellar and then the corpse just like comes out of nowhere. And the fact that it keeps it keeps touching her, that's yes. what I find really disturbing about that. It's like, I think as much as Argento kind of like fetishizes violence against women, I think he like understands he kind of understands it and and sort of 
the deep discomfort of constantly having your space violated by men. And I know this is a corpse, but <laughs> it's just the idea that the corpse like will not leave her alone and it keeps like bumping into mm. her and, and she's trying to get out and it's like tickling her feet and it's and it's interesting to see how that's edited is mm. really feels like a strange kind of like harassment. It's a really odd scene, but I find it, yeah. I don't think he's necessarily inherently misogynistic in his filmmaking um i think he does I mean, this is obvious he films a lot of women being murdered i think that taps into much more kind of deep-rooted ideas on what we're used and who we're used to see being um subjected to violence on screen and his own kind of ideas about beauty and how much more impactful it is to see someone beautiful and young being um well murdered and torn to bits and whatever but that kind of going back to that scene one of I remember one of the things that really struck me about it was the sound and it's going back to your idea of kind of this confined space and being harassed the idea that nobody would be able to hear her because she's underwater and there's this muffled you know underwater noise and even if she screams her lungs out nobody will be able to hear her even if there was people around and that also sort of taps into this very female I think fear of it doesn't matter if I scream because nobody would come and help me yeah and that's true actually because a lot of his a lot of his murders and especially in these two movies it's yeah it's really women who are, are very isolated and alone and you really get the sense that no one is stepping in to help them and I think that is such a a scary idea and the fact that it's always the you know he always does this thing of it's the invisible gloved hand yes and it's just this unknown inescapable terror I think you know that yeah that's the thing as you're saying as much as it, it is it is strange to see movies where it is constantly you know women being brutally mm. murdered and beautiful young women being brutally murdered there is something about the way that he shoots them that I think is very sort of empathetic towards yeah. female suffering and and the the very the pure terror of it as well i think he really gets that aspect of it i think he really understands fear and kind of how and what makes people afraid and exactly as you were saying i think he visually taps into fears that particularly women have that um, he's able to present as quite stylized, very impactful images. It kind of across all of his work, but especially these two films. And but going back to what you were saying, kind of where the kind of the protagonists and the way we flip between them and Inferno especially is quite strange, isn't it? Ostensibly, it's meant to be that Mark is the protagonist because he is the male hero who's going to come and rescue his sister and he's going to solve this mystery and sort it all out. But then Argento just keeps getting distracted by the women in his life and he'll just keep drifting away. You know, it will be a friend or like her neighbor and it just and it will go follow this woman for like 15 minutes and, and then she'll get br brutally murdered and then it will come back to Mark and check up on how he he's doing and I found that so interesting because Mark as a character the movie just does not seem interested in him at all just I'm, doesn't care 
I mean, he's not that interesting, is he? No. Yeah. <laughs> and the women around him are so are so fascinating, mm-hmm. and and brave, and and um, determined, and and they suffer horribly, but you really feel for them. And then Mark, you're just like, all right, yeah. you're gonna figure this out, or are you just gonna gulp it, <laughs> gulp at all these corpses? What are you doing, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that kind of works? against the film because we don't get a really strong protagonist to lead us through the narrative like we do like we get with Susie in in Susperia. True, yeah. A true, but then I think it also makes Inferno interesting in its own way. Cuz I think the the moment that I I noticed that this kept happening it just added this new layer to the movie because it, it going back to the thing I was saying that everyone in Inferno is very isolated mm-hmm. I think the fact that the narrative keeps jumping back to the women still manages to connect them in mm-hmm. a strange way so it still feels like a very feminine movie and a very a lot of feminine energy in this movie it's just not collected into one space you just keep mm. having to jump between them so yeah I guess on like pure sort of filmmaking terms mm. it, yeah it is a negative point but i think just in terms of me watching it i was like oh this is really interesting that's actually a really interesting point because that that makes the movies function as one or as reinterpretations of each other even better kind of if you think about it as sort of an evil dead evil dead 2 type approach of where it's kind of the same movie but you can watch them and enjoy them separately but they're also kind of doing the same thing, just slightly differently. And they're both companion pieces and remakes. Yeah, because I guess, I guess Mark is Susie from Suspiria to some degree. It's just that Susie is more interesting and so we want to stay with her while Mark is just a boring man who learns about music but like doesn't even pay attention in class which is annoying although there is that one scene in class which I found very interesting as well and I wonder if she was a witch you know that scene where he's in class and he's reading his sister's letter and he gets distracted by this really beautiful young woman who's just full-on staring at him so she's sort of turned around her back to the lecturer staring at him and sort of muttering something you can't really hear it but you can see her lips move and i was like this is is this a witch i kind of got the vibe of oh she's definitely a witch because she's sort of maybe casting a spell on him or doing something but she is so intensely focused and kind of alluring i was like oh is this and after i rewatched it yesterday i was like oh is this the mother of darkness in another disguise and she's sort of pushing him towards her yeah, that's what I thought because he sees her again when he is he outside the apartment building and she is goes past in the car. She's in the back of a car at one point. And so it, I guess she's definitely must be a witch of some kind because also in that class scene she has a cat, which is strange to it's strange to have a cat in a classroom, so it obviously must mean something. And, and throughout just have cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and throughout Inferno there's that really interesting idea of, of the cats as kind of all being the familiars of the and the cats have their whole sort of I guess the cats are the coven in a way. Because oh, it's all God. these cats sort of ganging together to <laughs> I mean, can we can we talk about the cat scene? I feel like we have to. <laughs> 
I'm slightly annoyed that my cat is not here because I think he could really contribute to this yeah. conversation. <laughs> I want to hear a cat's perspective on the cat scene. Oh, I'll, I'll talk to him later and record that. I'll pop it in. Good. <laughs> what do you think about kind of this? Um, well, what do you think about the cat attack scene? I well, I think it's it's kind of hysterical. <laughs> like I, I understand it's just because. You know, it was 1980. They didn't have good special effects, so they couldn't CGI a bunch of evil cats. And when you're watching the scene, it's really just a bunch of, like, mildly distressed cats being thrown at a woman. And, like, they clearly don't want to attack her. They're just cats being like, what? Why are you doing this? What's going on? They're all kind of, like, wriggling. I know. (laughs) Just, like, very not into this idea at all. I mean, I don't think they they seem like they're fine. I uh, hopefully there were, there was no or humane treatment of cats on set but really they just seem it was really distressing yeah they seem mainly annoyed like why are you doing this why are you picking me up and throwing me at this woman <laughs> like and i think it's funny like none of the cats really scratch her <laughs> they just sort of like flop around wriggle. yeah they flop around on top of her <laughs> although the the sound design of that scene i found really terrifying because a cat screeching aggressively or meowing in distress I find really upsetting Mm. maybe because I do love cats a lot but it's this idea of an animal being kind of both either aggressive or in distress or a combination of both and being and attacking but especially the sound they make I just find really really intense and I thought the power of that scene really because not of not the special effects but it kind of came down to the sound design of it Mm, and yeah, I will say the one thing I really liked is the the close-ups of the cats like screeching and 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 so I think that covers up the fact that when they they cut to the wide shot, it is just a cat flopping around. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I think like as much as I I I do find it a little funny because just because it's 1980 and they didn't know what to do with cats. Um, I yeah, I agree. I think the construction of the scene is like brilliant and and scary in in theory. And I also find I was very disturbed by the scene later where the the antique shop owner who um, is getting harassed by all these cats all the time and he's over it has this bag of cats that he goes and he tries to drown the cats. Yeah, that was extremely disturbing. I'd completely forgotten about that scene in the film. Yeah. I did not want to watch it. But I think it's it's interesting the way that that whole sequence is done that... That's why I kind of think of the cats as being the coven of Inferno, I guess, because even though you're lacking this sort of intense sort of group of of women that Mm -hmm. Suspiria has, the cats are kind of, they're everywhere, they're like scuttling around and they're they're very connected to each other. And, And so when they're all put in distress, it feels really violent and it feels Mm. horrific and, and the fact that the rats then like come to the rescue <laughs> and and you know have their vengeance on this horrible animal abuser it's such a, a weird yeah it's a very weird and intensely disturbing sequence and and as disturbing as i think you know watching the murders yeah is watching this guy and the screech of the cats and then the rats starting to circle it's a very it's hard I feel like it's quite hard to describe but yeah, it's uh I completely agree with you I found that I sometimes think that watching 
animals getting hurt or in pain on screen is even somehow more disturbing because you're watching someone I don't know inflict pain on on creatures and it's like it it just doesn't fall weirdly enough in the idea of acceptable horror which is very strange I realize that but I think it's because you know that like even though you know the cats on screen I'm I'm sure were fine mm. it's that you know that the cats that were in the scene did not know what was happening yeah and so that part of that distress was probably real and I think especially when you're watching older movies where they had you know less strict rules about mm-hmm. animal welfare you know I I don't I think the cats were I'm hopefully hoping the cats were fine in the sequence I mean nothing really happens to them that is that extreme yeah. it's mostly noises and mm. like a bag poking around but I think it is the idea of when you're watching an animal you you have that almost subconscious knowledge that that no animal is going to be like oh I know what my motivation is I know what's mm-hmm. happening in this scene <laughs> you know so if you see a distressed animal on screen you kind of know that it's real in yeah. a way I also thank you for putting the image in my head of a cat going I know what my motivation is <laughs> you see that doesn't happen no cats like Right, I I've wish got it my did. Lines down. <laughs> got my little robe on. I'll be in my trailer. Just I mean, I think they missed the trick in cat, Tom Hooper's cats. Yes. <laughs> kind of going back, I love the idea of the cats being the coven because they're also an animal that's very often associated with witches, very often presented to presented as familiars in a lot of very popular witch media. You know, with Chilling Adventures of Sabrina to go no further. But, um, and with the original Sabrina as well, but kind of this group thing. And I think in a way in Suspiria, there's almost like two covens because there's the coven of witches who are up to no good, but then there's also the students and the way they pass knowledge to each other is quite interesting because they're all warning each other to beware of certain things. You know, they warn Susie and they sort of whisper secret knowledge to each other to protect one another from the power that they might not exactly understand, but they know that there's something weird and something dark going on that they need to be aware of and protect themselves from. Yeah, I like how ambiguous it is because I feel like the... I, I agree with what you said, but then I also feel like the students are, the students came off of very, as very sort of strange and I didn't quite know what their motivations were because when Susie first walks into the school they're all quite they're all quite nasty with her apart from Sarah yeah. who's like her one ally they're very weird and they keep talking about money and and it just seems like there's something really off about them mm-hmm. and so I think I sort of come away from Suspiria with this feeling of like, yes, there's like the two covens, but then I don't quite trust the dancers mm-hmm. either because maybe they, maybe they're benefiting benefiting from it somehow, and they're they're gaining power from it, and so it's it feels like it's two circles that are maybe intersecting at some some point, but also mm. they they acknowledge that there is a greater power and they fear that power, but yeah, I find I find the students quite. Olga's quite scary mm. with her snakes. Mm-mm. Yeah, snake names. Like she's very, she's very odd. 
And what do you think kind of about the way that power is presented in both films? I think it is very much a feminine mystique type of a man directing a movie where he's he's sort of both respectful and scared of women. That's the, the, the vibe that I get from Argento. He sort of, he fears women, but he has sort of a strange respect for them. He doesn't understand them. He wants to understand them. He has empathy for them, but also they're like a totally different species to him. <laughs> That's sort of the overall vibe I get. And I think the way that he depicts power in these movies is with that sort of nature. And so you have those little moments of empathy for, for Marcos, but then also it's this sort of utterly like, you know, from the depths of hell driven ancient power and nothing can defeat it except for the cleansing fires. It's interesting that they both end with these big old fires they that do. just destroy everything. And the one in Suspiria is especially strange because you think that it's fine and she's defeated the evil and she's walking out and then suddenly the whole building goes and bursts into flame and then that's the end of the movie. And so I think it's interesting that he feels the need to, to completely sort of eradicate the earth of, of these powerful women because he you can't even... You can't even leave it at that and have some suggestion that they might rise up again you know they literally have to be but like wit i guess like witches yeah i mean i do find it interesting and this doesn't get mentioned that much but susperia was co-written and a lot of the scenes were, were based on her dreams or memories by um daria nicolodi who was his longtime collaborator and i believe his then wife or partner and it's got I think I don't I don't know because you can't really attribute particular scenes or you know bits of dialogue to her really at least I can't but I wonder if certain moments or certain relationships between characters or certain behaviors are actually coming from her and the fact that it is infused with a female perspective in the script helps and then that vibe then exists in in a lot of other Argento films is much more stylish and visual and kind of it's this push and pull of empathy and both putting these women in feminine power in a pedestal but also breaking it down and needing to destroy it because otherwise it's too much it kind of reminds me of like Nicholas Winding Refn who I think his movies kind of have kind of a similar treatment of women I think he's very he's kind of very empathetic towards them but also kind of scared I'm thinking of like Neon Demon mm -hmm. and it's interesting because that's kind of the same thing that it's a it's a male auteur but he sort of drew a lot from women's experiences he has a female cinematographer I think he was saying that he spoke a lot to his wife about that movie and so he's like very interested in the so I wonder if it's the same thing that you know, she contributed so many ideas, but are they then filtered through this inevitably male perspective? And so mm -hmm. you get this sort of really interesting distortion. And so that's why I think I find it very hard mm -hmm. to to really, I don't know, pinpoint how exactly yeah. he views women because it's all these different sort of emotions and perspectives getting funneled into this very surreal narrative. I mean, a lot has been said about his extreme violence and some of it now in 2020 will feel 
fine. Some of it still feels really shocking because it's extremely stylized. But at that time, Suspiria came out in 77, Inferno in 1980. That sort of violence had not really been seen in that way in cinema. Like it's very gory, but also extremely beautiful in a way because it's so otherworldly. You know, the blood is like neon red almost. Everything is kind of gorgeous and baroque and dreamlike and scary but not so scary that you want to look away because it doesn't look real but it's still quite disturbing you know kind of what do you make about the his use of violence especially you know most of it is against female bodies yeah i think for me violence there's always something when it's stylized to that point i think it becomes metaphorical as opposed to like, I'm literally watching this happen to this woman. And I think that's why the sort of movies that I, I like are very violent, but in a way that is so extreme and weird that it has no sort of, is you're like, well, this isn't reality. This isn't what this would actually look like. And so I think, because I think violence is such an extreme it's like the most extreme emotion is like pure you know blood rage and so yeah I guess I guess that's what's interesting about Suspiria and Inferno is that the murders in it feel more like emotions and feelings and and thoughts as opposed to a literal violent act I love that I love that that last sentence is so perfect <laughs> um <laughs> We mentioned it a little bit before, but obviously this film has had such a big influence. And weirdly, I feel like sometimes the witchy elements of it don't get as much uh, thought as the styling of it and the visual and kind of the the filmmaking of it, essentially. But what do you think has been its most enduring influence on other witch movies or series that is true that you say it's we often forget the witch part of it. I think I think it's that sort of idea of of because they are very there's a lot of be- beautiful women but scary and beautiful and power and you're scared of them but also they're so enchanting. I think that's really filtered down a lot into kind of modern witch representation. I guess we were mentioning Sabrina mm-hmm. sort of the idea of 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 Sabrina and the other witches at the school especially who are these like beautiful powerful kind of scary women and you don't want to mess with them and they're all they're all together in their clique I think those the kind of ideas sisters. the weird sisters yeah yeah I think like the weird sisters are kind of a bit Suspiria-ish to me because they're always whispering to each other and they're very secretive and I think that sort of cool girl aspect to it feels like Suspiria to me and there's a whole big thing about the number three, isn't there? The three mothers, the weird sisters. You know, if we go to Charmed, it's the power of three. I didn't even think of that. That's a really good point. Yeah. There's a lot of um, lot of threes everywhere. Yeah, and like the a lot of Trinity. Power. I guess the Trinity is like the opposite of the Holy Trinity. I yeah. do not know what price I shall have to pay for breaking what we alchemists call silentium. The life experiences of our colleagues should warn us not to upset laymen by imposing our knowledge upon them. I, Varelli, an architect living in London, met the three mothers and designed and built for them three dwelling places. One in Rome, one in New York, 
and a third in Freiburg, Germany. I failed to discover until too late that from those three locations, the three mothers ruled the world with sorrow, tears, and darkness. Meta Suspiriorum, the mother of sighs and the oldest of the three, lives in Freiburg. Meta Lacrimarum, the mother of tears and the most beautiful of the sisters, holds rule in Rome. Meta Tenebrarum, the mother of darkness, who is the youngest and cruelest of the three, controls New York. And I built their horrible houses, the repositories of all their filthy secrets. Those so-called mothers are actually wicked stepmothers, incapable of creating life. Infamous. I think in, because it's vaguely inspired by this Thomas de Quincey essay, and he's got a whole essay, uh, which I linked to. It's all kind of available online, and it's it's very interesting to read. It's kind of like prose poetry. So he wrote about the kind of the goddess of childbirth called Lavana. And in that essay, he brings up the three sisters as kind of the three ladies and kind of as the complete opposite of um, of deities in a way. And he literally, I think that's where Argento drew the names for the three mothers from because he literally calls them Mata Lacrimarum, Our Lady of Tears, Mata Suspiriorum, Our Lady of Sighs, and Mata Tenebram, Our Lady of Darkness. So he's lifted that and fleshed it out into into something, well, visual, but not plot-wise. And is that, does that have the connection as well to the, the three witches from Macbeth, I wonder? I w- I think a lot of stuff has come from the Witches of Macbeth because it's the same thing, you know, with the power of three and the three women who are don't really function without one another. Yeah. And, and that is one thing missing, I think, from these movies is you don't get a sense of how the connection between them because I'm guessing a spirit... Suspiria is meant to take place before Inferno. I actually yes. never thought about it. No, it does because at the end of Inferno, the Mother of Darkness mentions that her house will have to burn the same way as the one in Germany. Yes. Yeah. But it's, I th- yeah, it is interesting though that, that beyond that, there's not really much sense because you would think that once one witch goes, the power of the other two would start to wane. Mm. But there's no... There's no real idea that they have much connection as opposed outside of the fact that they just have these three houses that they all chill out in separately. (laughs) It does feel like a bit of an uncompleted trilogy. I know that the Mother of Tears was completed the trilogy, but it's such an uninspired film in many ways. It feels like such a letdown to the story that that he started building. I wish that he would have made it at the same in the same era as he made Suspiria and Inferno because visually it just doesn't have the same oomph. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like part of that trilogy. It yeah. just feels so disconnected and so yeah, as you said, so from a different time that it's it doesn't in the same way because Suspiria and Inferno are, as we kind of already said, basically the same movie. Yeah. And I sort of wanted that a third time. <laughs> Three of the same movie, please. And uh, just to wrap up, but very lightly, what did you think of the Luca Guadagnino's remake of Suspiria? I loved it in the sense that I think it was very 
different and all the stuff that we talked about today i think he came at it from a very different angle as, as a very modern angle that now that we are sort of associate witches with power and freedom and sort of more positive things <laughs> um and so i think he did a really good job of sort of still letting the witches be sort of evil and sinister but reinterpreting that in a different way by connecting it to to the trauma of the cold war and, and memory and so sort of finding a different way to explore the the themes of power in the original suspiria without it just being like oh women are evil scary boo <laughs> there's like i i liked it and i don't think it diminishes this, the original suspiria at all i think it just it just felt like uh, a film that was very suitable for today and, mm -hmm. and how we think about things today especially because i think we're talking a lot about trauma now and so to to be able to put that theme in it i thought was really cool amazing thank you so much thank um, you and where can people find more of your work uh so i pretty much post everything on my twitter so that's always the easiest place to go um and that is uh clarice larkery or at clarice lou because i couldn't <laughs> put my full name in the twitter handle so i had to just stop <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much and thank you so much for your time and for your insight on both the films thank you, you. it was so much fun talking about these Great, I'm very happy for that. And that's it for another episode of the Final Ghost Podcast. Please do rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more about what we do in the finalghost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Final Ghost UK. You can also follow Clarice on Twitter at Clarice Lou, and I am on Annabi Demented. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more witchy goodness next week. Yeah.